The Irish Times Books Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's ethically sourced cocoa for a delicious chocolate taste. Welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast. I'm the books editor, Martin Doyle. In this episode, I talk to Darren Anderson about his memoir of growing up in Troubles Torn Derry, Inventory, A River, A City, A Family. We discuss, among many other things, its themes of family, history and memory, its inspiration found in the ideas of Georges Perec, and how it relates to his previous work, Imaginary Cities, which was an exploration of urban landscapes that never were, or that existed only on the page or on the screen. Inventory, A River, A City, A Family, uh, your new book, your second book, um, I think it's fantastic. I'd say it's probably, um, you know, the best book that I've read so far this year. and I've read a fair few. Um, now, obviously, I'm from the north, so, you know, maybe uh, that makes me slightly biased in the sense that what you're writing about is somewhat familiar to me, but I think um, its appeal um uh, is is much wider than that. Uh, it's a hugely powerful um, family history, but also a portrait of a city uh, and a society. Um, could you tell me a little bit about um, where it came from? Well, the uh, I wanted to do after Imaginary Cities because it was such a big sprawling text that went, you know, all over space and time and all over the world and down the centuries. I wanted to. Um, continue the theme of cities, which is really my bread and butter in terms of work. Um, you know, I work as a journalist in architecture and urbanism. So I wanted a theme that was uh, simultaneously related to, you know, my my everyday work. But uh, I wanted to not just have a big sprawling text like Imaginary Cities was. So I, I took the uh, Imaginary Cities thing being a sort of macrocosm I, I wanted to zoom in to the kind of microcosm of a single city sure maybe we should just if, if, if i can interrupt there maybe we could just sort of tell us um a little bit about um imaginary cities i think it it was a book about um urban landscapes that never were and um, that existed perhaps only on the page on the screen screen or yeah. in our dreams yeah so it was a book that was inspired by uh, Italo Calvino's uh, Invisible Cities, uh, which is a book that's always kind of fascinated me. And um, I was in Phnom Penh in, in Cambodia when I when I began to write it. Um, so it's this fascinating city um, that's seen all sorts of, you know, utopian and dystopian incarnations. And, you know, if you wrote down the history of Phnom Penh, it would, it would seem like a fantasy novel. It would seem like a dark dystopian kind of fiction. So um, I was surrounded by this fantastic cityscape uh, and all and all the history there. And, and I, I, tr- I tried to write a book that was kind of almost like an encyclopedia or an exploration of the intersection of the fantastical and the real. So sort of cities that people have dreamt up um, in terms of architects and fantasy writers, science fiction writers, filmmakers, artists. Um, but the, the aim of that was to kind of show the intersection with the real. So part of the purpose of it was to, to demonstrate that, 
you know, every city was once in someone's imagination or every building, you know, every building in the skyline essentially began in someone's head. And the entire of history is really contingent. You know, nothing's really natural or, or inevitable in, in any kind of cityscape. Um, so that was that was the thing that I was fascinated by. And it, it took me in all these adventures, like sort of in my own imagination, but physically as well around the world to different places. So I guess um, inventory was a bit of a, a continuation of that, but also a reaction against it. So I wanted to zoom into one place in particular. And I thought, well, I might as well use the, the city that I grew up in, which is, um, which is Derry. In fact, um, Carl Whitney, when he interviewed you for the Irish Times about imaginary cities, uh, one of the questions he asked you was, do you think your experience of growing up in Derry helped to shape your approach to cities or the urban form? Um, and your answer, I don't know if you can remember it. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you said, deep down it informs everything I write and talk about still. Foucault once wrote, where there is power, there is resistance. And Derry was an explicit example of that. It gave you a sixth sense and a healthy scepticism of authority. And that is a thread, thread that um, very much runs through inventory. Would you agree? I think so. I mean, wherever you grow up, um, that that becomes really, e even if you try and escape it, even, you know, if you have a kind of culture cringe. Uh, and I left Derry, you know, pretty much when I was about 19 or 20 and have never really uh, lived back here for for long since then. So I've always kind of lived in either Scotland or England or, or further afield. Um, even when you kind of go away, I, I feel like you never escape it. Um, it because in a way it's the kind of prism through which you view everything else. And uh, one of my favorite books, Gaston Bachelard's The Poetics of Space, you know, it's very much about sheltered spaces and how, you know, crawling into attics when you're a little kid or hiding in cupboards or going down into basements and, you know, entering cathedrals and the actual physical spaces have this uh, amazing influence through the rest of your life in terms of, you know, how you judge every everywhere else. So I've, um, I'd always consider myself a, a kind of dairyman, um, regardless of how long I've been away. It's interesting, though, as well as saying that, you know, um, having gone, you can never sort of escape it. But I think you also say in, in the book that neither can you go back. That's sort of the Homeric idea of nostalgia is, you know, um, a longing for a place. But yeah. you make the point that, you know, the longing is also for a past time or a lost time in, in, in your case, that your, your childhood growing up there. Yeah, well, you you can't. I mean, that's that's the thing about home. It's this sort of uh, uh, a it's a place that you can return to, but it's also a time that you can't return to. And uh, I feel that very acutely when I when I come back home, which is isn't as often as I'd like. Um, that it that it is a place that I'm kind of uh, that's built me in my way of seeing the world, but I'm also dislocated from and have always really been dislocated from I feel like there is quite a peripheral place and I felt from the periphery of a periphery so um but it's a place I love very much I, I do feel just uh personally I, I'm a bit of a nomad and I'm a bit of a wanderer and um you know a bit of a loner actually and uh, maybe maybe all writers have that quality um certainly whenever I've been involved in any kind of writing scene 
it always seems like for all the the kind of goodwill involved and you know you, you really want to be part of a scene or part of a, of a movement it always feels like a kind of herd of cats it's like there's particularly bad people to uh, congregate together because it's such an introverted thing to do for a living yeah i mean i work with architects and designers and computer games people and and they seem much more integrated and uh, the work seems to overlap a lot uh, whereas writers are kind of like little um little sort of uh worlds of their own you know they occasionally orbit one another but yeah um, it's interesting you really say that because actually like say field day um probably grew out of Derry. that's the probably the the most collegial irish um yeah. group of artists that i can think of uh stephen ray brian freel seamus dean um heaney yeah. etc and of course as brendan Behan once said the first thing on the agenda of an Irish group is a split. Um, nothing, nothing seems to, to last forever. I think it works in theatre more because it's a collaborative art, you know, and, and, I, and I do like the collaborations. I mean, my work in, in the architecture kind of side of things, uh, I have great admiration for things like the Bauhaus where, you know, designers were working with textile artists and they were working with architects. And I do think there's a lot of uh, potential for crossover, but I also am aware of the limitations of... Uh, you know, being a kind of, uh, the, the writer is basically just this kind of St. Jerome in the study. I suppose one way, though, I suppose one way of in which um, writers or artists can, uh, in, in the literary field can collaborate is through, say, literary magazines. And I know you feel very much indebted to Kevin Barry and Olivia Smith for, yeah. you know, for the support that they showed you, say, I think uh, a passage from Inventory uh, was first published in Winter Papers. Is that right? Yeah, so it was a, a kind of section of uh, I had a bad experience in Belfast where uh, I was I was up there for a winter alone working, and uh, I was coming back from a nightclub and I kind of got set upon and it it was I, I I think it was to do with the fact that I was walking across an intersection so uh, the people who jumped me were they were able to discern what my religion was and what my political status might be. Uh, from from basically which side of the road I was walking down. Um, so uh, I was lucky to get away from that with just, you know, sort of bruises and cuts and black eye and stuff. Um, but that's, yeah, that, that incident, I, I wrote that up for for their publication, which, uh, yeah, I think, I, I think the uh, publications like theirs and, and like Gorse and the Sting and Fly uh, do a fantastic job really and and kind of keeping the flame burning and and giving people a sense i mean i i wrote for basically about 15 years before i got i first got paid for any writing so um i'm basically a, a working class writer and, and have always remained that that way uh despite what people say you know or people might suggest about writing being innately a kind of middle class hobby um, i've always felt like uh you know, I've, I've just been writing and writing and writing like mad for years and years and years to no avail. And it was basically those publications that uh, were the first to, to take a risk and to put faith in my writing. So I'm eternally grateful to them. On that score, like the the gestation for inventory has been long and difficult. Um, like I remember I was in contact with you first, I don't know, two, three years ago about another book, Tide Rack, 
um, yeah. which you know was about to come out. Um, I think you described it as incomprehensible, Sibaldian and endlessly tangential um, about the troubles. Um, what happened to it, and how different a book is Inventory um, to it? It's very, very different. Uh, so th- that book was like a, a nature book, um, and it was vast, kind of sprawling, Sibaldian book about the actual river foil that goes through Derry. Uh, but it was a very strange book. Uh, I wrote it at a time that I don't think I should have been writing anything, perhaps. Um, you know, go, going through just health problems and the collapse of my marriage, which I won't go into, but uh, it was a pretty turbulent, rough period of time. Um, and uh, to be working on this sort of crazed attempt at a masterpiece uh, was not a good idea, and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Um, and also, I, I I delved very, very deeply into the troubles when I was writing that. So it was a very strange book. It had chapters that were kind of narrated by, you know, a drowned fighter pilot at the bottom of the river, and that, and just it was just strange looking back. Um, probably not the result of someone uh, who's in a healthy state of mind, but um, uh, the the feeling that I got. I mean, I, I delved very deeply. I, I felt I had to really educate myself about the Troubles, even though I grew up during the, at least the tail end of the Troubles. Uh, so I went, I, I went and researched every death in the Troubles uh, in great detail. And the sort of emotional weight of that was, was quite overwhelming. So, you know, I ended up <clears throat> getting like night terrors and a sleep disorder. And uh, it wasn't really a case of that kind of Nietzsche thing about... You know, be careful if you stare into the abyss. The abyss might stare back. Um, so that that book was uh, it. It was uh, a heavy, a heavy text and written at a heavy time. Is it a book? That, I, is it a book that you would still like to see published? Oh no, it's it's gone. I mean, I've been asked quite a few times about that, but it's now. I, I basically it went in the river, so <laughs> it'll never come out. But uh, I mean, it was worthwhile in a sense. It was probably cathartic in some kind of way um but it, it got stuck in development hell um i don't know that the the publishers have been wonderfully supportive but i don't know i think they they just were a bit bemused by it um so what i did after it was in development hell for a few years i just cleared the decks completely and i spent about three weeks and just wrote inventory from scratch um, now, the subject being, you know, childhood and growing up and family and all these tragedies and wonders that had happened um, in my life and in the society around me, um, that's such a kind of sprawling, uh, nebulous kind of thing that it's almost kind of paralyzing. You know, you don't know where to begin because there's so much potential things you could write about. And the real break, the real breakthrough in inventory was um, chancing upon... Uh, the French group, uh, Ulipo, who, who initially I thought were kind of, uh, I didn't like the idea of them. They sounded like, you know, they were sort of some kind of academic avant-garde sort of, yeah, pretentious fluxus kind of thing, which I don't really have much time for. But I really fell in love with George Perrick's writing. And he's seen as a bit of a kind of court jester, but I think he's he's very, very deep. Um, and he... You know, his his mother was killed in the Holocaust. He himself died very young. 
Um, but he's got this uh, wonderful playfulness and he basically, a, a quote of his, which I used as the epigraph of the book, um, about making inventory of the things in your pockets and where they came from and where they're going to go. Uh, that, that gave me a structure and that, and that was kind of marvelous because I found out it's almost like the way people write manifestos that having limitations ends up being very liberating because you've suddenly got a focus, you've suddenly got a reason to leave things out and include other things. So so that gave me the, the objects idea for inventory. So every chapter is a different object. So the idea, it, the idea being that you basically turned out your family's pockets and yeah. took out catapults yeah. or um, a portrait of your grandfather in a British Army uniform or whatever and, and yeah. extrapolated from that? Yeah, so each each object kind of tells tells a story or is used to tell a story. And uh, turning out the pockets is a very good way to put it because there is a kind of... Uh, there's a, a certain taboo still in Northern Ireland about talking about things, um, not just the troubles, but, you know, growing up in poverty, which which I did, and, and my parents had infinitely worse conditions than I did, and their parents had infinitely worse than they had. Uh, so, so to talk about these things is, um, is painful, and people would rather that you didn't, but if you don't talk about it, nobody talks about it, and a conspiracy of silence exists, and, you know, we've seen recently that... Uh, there are certain political cynics that will come along and just tell you the things never happened or there was never a border or there was never this sectarian state or there was never terrible deprivation. Um, so I, I thought that the, the risk uh, of confronting that taboo, um, that kind of amerta that we still have a little bit, I don't know the, the heaney thing of whatever you say, say nothing. I thought it was worth the risk. Um, one, so I did it. one of the most powerful um, passages in the book is, um, without making it into a spoiler or whatever, is an imagined conversation with your father. It's funny, your first book was Imaginary Cities, and here there's a kind of a key scene, which is actually an imaginary conversation. Um, could you tell us a, a little bit about um, why why you did that? Was it sort of to explore you know, the fact that, you know, um, memory itself is kind of perhaps elusive or whatever and you know can you say for sure whatever happened and so forth mm. well I think in the north I mean in Ireland generally but especially in the north from my experience they're great storytellers and great joke tellers and uh, it took me a while to realize that's really because they're avoiding talking about things they become kind of masters of subterfuge or, or kind of sideways things and you notice that you're in the trouble and I, I mean I notice it still going to certain places uh, across the religious or social divide like, there's so much that's picked up by accents or inflections there's little kind of hints and insinuations all the time you know people are are still they've got their kind of uh, sensors up um, there's a lot of conversations that are between the sentences in Northern Ireland. And I mean, that happens within families. So again, maybe this is an Irish thing or a working class thing or a Catholic thing, but there's a silence between fathers and sons here. And there are certain things that are unapproachable in terms of, you know, discussing traumas and ex even just experiences. Uh, so 
I learned a lot about my father through talking to his sisters or talking to uh, my mother or hearing just stories or finding little snippets of information or slips of the tongue even, you know. Um, but I, I learned this entire sort of back history through little scraps of information and I tried to put it all together and I made it look as if it was a conversation in the book and then kind of revealed that actually we haven't said anything to one another and uh, we have a good relationship but it's very distant um, and uh, there's a lot of unspoken things in that distance um, and I mean it's not just here I, I had an interesting taxi journey recently and well a wee while ago in Scotland where um and in terms of talking about trauma and the legacy of the troubles and stuff, I got into a taxi. My my son is a, he's just a little boy and he lives in Glasgow with his mother. And I was going there to see him and I, I got a taxi to the train station. And the taxi man said to me, oh, I recognize your accent. You're from Northern Ireland. He was a Scottish guy. And I said, I am from Derry. And he said, oh, well, oh, I know Derry well. And I said, well, how do you know Derry? Oh, I served there, you know, during the Troubles. I was in such and such regiment. And we had a, we had a chat and I was, we were kind of laughing and joking and stuff. And I was saying, you know, I was probably throwing stones at you as a kid. And and my dad was, you know, probably dodging bullets from me at, you know, 10 years, 15 years earlier. So it was a nice kind of chat. And uh, at the end, when we pulled up at the train station, now, bearing in mind, this is a 50-year-old burly ex-soldier guy. Uh, as I go to pay him, he uh, he bursts into tears. And I just was completely dumbfounded. Um, and it really stayed with me. I remember being in that train journey thinking the amount of unacknowledged and uh, buried trauma, you know, psychologically and socially, that came out of that conflict and all the repercussions that came out of it uh, are still there. You know, they're still there bubbling under and these men are now fathers, grandfathers um, and the woman that had to, to witness it and be sucked into it too uh, are, are continuing to live their lives, you know, um, but it's all, it's all still there, you know, and there's, there's a, we've gone from having a silence of, you know, you might get shot if you speak too much to a kind of silence of, well, don't rock the boat. You know, we're, you know, Belfast is buzzing. You know, everything's fine. Don't scare away the tourists or the investors. You know, don't spook the horses. But we've gone through from one, uh, one form of silence to another form of silence. And maybe that was the cost of the peace processes was that we had to have a kind of culture of amnesia. But uh, any psychologist will tell you that that's a bad thing to do on and grand scale. There still is obviously a price to pay. Like I'm not sure if it's actually in the book or sort of touched on somehow. But uh, Lyra McKee, who who wrote the great essay "Suicide of the Ceasefire Babies" for Mosaic, but like suicide is you know um, something that's prevalent in the north and that's sort of um, understood to be a kind of an outworking of the trauma of the troubles, um, like suicide features in your own book and your own family history. Uh, would yeah. you like to say something about that? Yeah, well, uh, I the the river that I read about, uh, that I wrote about in both those books, the one that um, that isn't coming out and the one that is. Um, my grandfather drowned in the river, and my grandmother committed suicide in the river. And I've had members of the family since. The reason I came back to the 
the city after leaving was uh, to help look for uh, a relative's body in the river, um, a young man. Now, there's a, there's a huge suicide problem here. Uh, I think more people have committed suicide since the Good Friday Agreement uh, than died in the Troubles. So it's a gigantic problem that's related to the legacy of the Troubles, uh, but also you know, poverty, deprivation, the fact, uh, I see it in Derry, that Derry's just been allowed to kind of sink. Um, and it's uh, economically, you know, there's no real investment. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the issues themselves aren't being addressed very well. I, I Recently, there was talk of uh, putting a kind of big fence along the bridge and they would turn it into like a big public art display but it was basically to stop people throwing themselves in as if the river and the bridge are the problem, you know? Uh, so all the actual issues, the fact that, especially amongst young men who seem to be, you know, the suicides are mostly young men. Uh, there's a huge problem with the fact that they just don't have a future. You know, they don't have employment. They don't have decent education opportunities or a way of advancing themselves. Um, and the mental health support is pretty poor. And even when it is addressed, there's this kind of uh, very middle-class liberal approach to it. I, I feel it's uh, very facile, you know, oh, just talk to someone, uh, you know. And while talking is so crucially important, um, it's just the beginning. I mean, it's the first thing you should do. It's not a, a solution. It's a kind of, if anything, a bit of a panacea because... Um, no matter, you know, all the mindfulness in the world and all the conversations in the world aren't going to bring people jobs and hope and money and get rid of their anxieties. Um, and I feel like, uh, I feel in a way that there's concrete issues here that are being sort of uh, papered over with um, lots of well-meaning but, but quite facile um, discourse. Uh, so, in a way, you know, the book's quite angry about that. Um, but I'm also trying to be very empathetic to actually work out, well, what what can we do to address these issues? Um, and uh, Lyra was doing a, a fantastic job shining light on the very, very difficult, complex subjects. And, uh, you know, I had a, when she was alive, I had an incredible admiration for her work and we were kind of working parallel on similar themes and uh i think even her murder is uh itself is a sign of how things are sliding back into into the bad old days to an extent um and we can't let that happen there's a sense i think that um your father you know there's a delayed reveal in the book that um your father you know was himself in actual fact involved very much involved in the troubles but there's a sense that um he gave you um a gift in the sense that um he broke the cycle of violence by not um by kind of keeping that from that that information from you and not kind of inculcating you into a tradition of um, of taking up arms, if you like, or of get engaging in violence to secure yeah. change. Yeah, I mean uh, that that resentment. Uh, you know, resentment's a powerful thing because if if you want to address injustice and 
uh, things that were done to you or your family or your ancestors, um, there's a nobility to that. Um, and especially, you know, during the what happened in Derry with the civil rights movement, uh, all the peaceful ways to Catholics getting justice and getting treated with any kind of decency were were blocked very violently. Uh, and in a way, violence was made inevitable. Now, violence itself then corrupts the people who are doing it um, and corrupts the actual cause itself. Um, but I have a, I try to be as empathetic from all sides as I can. You know, I, I have a, an awareness that I was born at a certain time and I don't know what I would have done. You know, there by the grace of God go all of us. Um, nobody really knows what they would have done as a kind of young man being shot at, seeing your family degraded, having grown up in an actual squat. And, you know, your father was a was in the British Army. You should have been treated with some decency. Um, to witness all those things, and the book is full of those kind of daily humiliations or, or huge historical events, um, you don't know what you would have done, so you have to go in with a, a degree of sympathy um, to the kind of all, all sides involved to get a real complex view of the actual history of it. Um, so I, I, I don't, I try to not to judge as much as I think not a single person should, should have died during the troubles. Um, you have to, to look at every, every possible angle. And I feel like, uh, my parents did something very strong, which was, um, they kept their beliefs, you know, they're, they're still very political people. I'd say my mom's a kind of like. Uh, she's quite feminist and a, and a sort of, she wouldn't probably call herself that, but she is like a, quite a formidable matriarch. And, and my dad has his beliefs, you know, it's still kind of Republican, um, but he's he's very much kind of pacifist. Um, they, they did something important, which was they, they just refused to hate. They just, they just said, we're not, we refuse to do that, almost in a defiant way. You know, the hate isn't going to eat us up. It isn't going to be passed on to our children. Um, we do, we refuse that, you know. And I think as much as I'm not, uh, I wouldn't be uh, a great advocate or, or, you know, I don't I don't really support any political uh, party in Northern Ireland. There was something in the, in the phrase that Bobby Sands said about the revenge being the laughter of our children that I thought transcended the politics um, that idea of if we create, um, you know, a, a society where people are happier. Um, but what happens with violence is that the the means corrupt the ends. You know, if a wonderful society or even a more just society is um, achieved through a pile of bodies or through the, the grief of children seeing their fathers getting murdered, um, and then you have to wonder, is it worth it or is it a just society at all? So I, I think a, a very complex, multi-layered look at the troubles. And uh, I mean, it, it's it's hard going at times, but um, there is some levity in there. Like it's not it's not a barrel of laughs looking at these things, but um, I think, it's also... I think ultimately, I think ultimately it is um, an uplifting read um, and an inspirational one. Um, yeah. It's interesting, just a final note is that... Um, um, You've also been interviewed for the Irish Times by, uh, for the print edition of the Irish Times by Seamus O'Reilly, who has got his own um, dairy memoir coming out later this year. 
in April, I think, called Did You Hear Mommy Died? And as well, yeah. there's Thin Places by Kerry O'Doherty, which is to be published by Canongate next spring. Um, so there is, you know, definitely something in the air in Derry. Um, as Seamus said, it's quite a time for Derryographies. Um, I was reassuring him that, you know, if the worst comes to the worst, he can always do what David Lodge did after a column to Bean's book about Henry James, the master, overshadowed his own author, author, and he can write his own book about it. Well, um, that's maybe one for down the line. Yeah, it's, um, it's. I mean, it's a kind of isolated place in, in a way, um, you know, geographically, it's not part of the south. It's not really part of the north as well. It's its own kind of little... And cut off from its inter hinterland by, by the border, yeah, invisible and, or otherwise. And, yeah, so it, it's always felt like a little bit... Um, a little bit of its own little place. Um, but hopefully, all, all the all the work that everyone's doing sounds um, fascinating and rev revelatory, and it's... It's been a long time coming. I, I feel like there's a, a kind of time and generational thing to this because uh, we had the Heaney's and the Seamus Deans talking and they would have probably been my my grandfather's age. And uh, the generation below that were so immersed in the troubles that they never really got a chance to speak. So now their children are, we're, we're having our own children and we're starting to reflect back. Inevitably, when you have a, a child, you reflect back on your own parents and, and you realize that... Uh, Jesus, he didn't do a bad job, all things considered, you know, and in terms of what was surrounding them, um, you have to really uh, have admiration. Thank you for listening to this latest Irish Times Books podcast with author Darren Anderson. Inventory is published by Chateau and Windus next week. <laughs>